Shalom and thank you for clicking to listen to one of our audio messages. At Tikvat David, we are building a Yeshua-centered Judaism for Israel and the nations. We hope that this message will encourage, inform, and inspire you to follow Yeshua and to walk in the pathways of Torah. Enjoy. Well, today we're going to continue to march our way through chapter 3 of Philippians. We're going to be picking up in verse 12 of chapter 3, and we're going to aim to finish chapter 3 today. And so uh, here in verse 12, Paul still has his foot on the gas. I mean, he is still pouring it on and making his case as to why the Philippians should stay in Christ, as opposed to escaping their current suffering uh, and returning to the gods of Philippi, Uh, which we could also term as paganism. Uh, Paul wants them to stay in this uh, Yeshua-centered Judaism that he is propagating. He wants them to stay in uh, as members of the nations who have joined the family of Abraham and are now brothers uh, alongside the Jewish people. So let's read verses 12 through 16, and then we'll uh, we'll discuss the text. And uh, remember, we we said last week that Paul is is talking about attaining uh, the future resurrection because of knowing Yeshua and the power of his resurrection. So that's kind of the context where Paul's going to pick up here in the flow. So in verse 12, uh, Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this, so speaking of the the resurrection, uh, he says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So Craig Keener, uh, a New Testament scholar that I I reference frequently, he's quick to note in his commentary that Paul here is using the language of athletic competition metaphorically. And and we can see that and feel that uh, as we're reading uh, through the text. Uh, And Keener notes actually that this was was a common tactic for uh, ancient uh, moralists. Uh, if you will, so uh, so I in my Bible here as I'm I'm looking at it here in, in Philippians, I underline some of the athletic uh, language. But I'm I'm curious, and I'm wondering what you're thinking as well. What why does Paul use this tactic here? Why does he use uh, athletic metaphors here? I mean, you look at the text there, you can see. I mean, if you have if you have a Tanakh in front of you or on your phone, you know he says I press on. He's talking about a goal. He's talking about a prize. He's talking about an upward call. These are all, you know, it really sounds like the Olympics, uh, if you will. So why does he do that? Why does he use these kinds of metaphors? Well, I think this is an example, actually, of 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verses 20 and 21 in action. That's a famous text where Paul says to the Jew, I became as a Jew. You got, you know the text when I when I start saying it, if, uh, um, you know, because it's it's one that's, that's frequently quoted. Uh, in reference uh, to Paul, and, and and many people think it's sort of like Paul's, like a hermeneutical center for Paul, that that text is really kind of a defining text for Paul. And I would say uh, that, that there's there's some, some validity in that. I don't know if it is the defining text, uh, but it certainly is an important one. But let's read that, and then I'll say why I think that's kind of what the move that Paul is doing here in Philippians 3. In 1 Corinthians 9, 2021, Paul says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. 
to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I may win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Okay, so this is this text is actually quite controversial uh, as far as its its meaning, but I agree with Mark Nanos and largely with David Rudolph, uh, who wrote an excellent book um, based on his PhD work. Um, Rudolph's book is is kind of the defining uh, work on First Corinthians nine. Uh, it's called uh, I think it's called A Jew to the Jews. He has a second volume of it that's out. Uh, but it's an excellent work. And, and so both Nanos and Rudolph have very important readings of 1 Corinthians 9. But essentially, uh, Nanos in particular has popularized the idea that Paul's language here in 1 Corinthians 9 is that he is uh, speaking of his rhetorical adaptability uh, as a good shaliach, uh, apostle, emissary, reaching out to the Gentile nations. In other words, uh, Paul, uh, he, he, he wasn't... He, definitely wasn't one, I would say, to modify his behavior for his audience. So we're not talking about adapting his behavior. I think Paul was steadily throughout his life a Torah observant Jew, even when he was among you know, the Gentiles and, and out doing his missionary journeys. Um, and we, I, I believe that based on his own testimony in Acts 28, 17, where he says, I have done nothing against the custom of my fathers, of our fathers, uh, when he's speaking to the Roman Jewish community, when he arrives in Rome in Acts 28. So Paul didn't modify his behavior, but he would adapt his rhetoric based on his audience. And in Philippians, again, he is speaking to disciples in Philippians. Okay, so that's granted. But I think that this principle of adapting his rhetoric for his audience uh, was something that Paul would do no matter who he was speaking to. And in, again, in Philippians, his audience is, surprise, it's Philippian. Uh, they have a Greco-Roman mindset. And so athletic analogies and metaphors were effective just like they would be in today in Western culture as you know, athletic prowess and abilities and so forth was, uh, was something that was valued throughout uh, the Greco-Roman culture and mindset uh, of that time. So it's natural in being, you know, adapting to his audience uh, that he would use those kinds of metaphors. It's not really something you don't really see athletic metaphors common in uh, when when in, in Jewish literature. But it makes sense that Paul is doing this because his audience is not a Jewish audience. But of course, the bigger question here is what's Paul's point? Okay, we, we can see he's using athletic imagery, but why? Well, it's pretty clear that his point is to, he's, he's persuading the Philippians to hold on to Yeshua. He's encouraging them to press on like an athlete, to reach the goal, uh, which, uh, which he calls the, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus in verse 14. And so he's, he's wanting them like an athlete, finishes the race. He's wanting them to finish the race. Because again, remember, he's writing this letter because he's concerned they're not going to finish the race. He is concerned they are going to depart from Yeshua faith and return to paganism. And he kind of sums this up in verse 16 with this statement. He says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. In other words, Paul's saying, don't abort. Don't quick. Press on. You can do this. Finish the race uh, is is what he's saying. Like you would hear at the Olympics or at a you know high school track event or at a one of your kids' softball games, whatever it may be. So that's the idea here that Paul is doing. And again, he's he's 
speaking the language of his audience, which Paul was brilliant at doing. Now, before we move on, I want to note that in verse 13, we see Paul using the term brothers. Uh, and it's very easy to go by that very quickly. That's that's language that we're very accustomed to, um, and and that you know you hear that especially in Christian circles. But I hear you know in, in the Jewish community the term brother is used uh, as well, and so this is a very common term for us. Now the Greek word here that Paul uses in this letter is adelphoi, adelphoi, uh, and you can hear kind of the music there as I'm saying adelphoi, as in Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, and so. Um, you know, there's, there's that, that, that's the idea here, uh, that they're, they're, they're brothers. You know, when you hear that, that word, Philadelphia, Adelphoi, you can hear the sense similarity in the sound. So this is the third of eight times that Paul uses this term in this letter, Adelphoi, brothers. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty common designation that Paul uses. And it's easy again for us to take the significance of this word for granted and just go right by it. Um, you know, again, this is a term we use in modern times in both religious and popular culture and, of course, family life uh, to refer to someone that we either have a literal kinship or a, or a sort of a, a, a kinship of, of spirit, if you will, or an intimate bond with somebody. But in this letter, we have to remember there is a deep theological, prophetic, and messianic significance for a Jewish man to speak of Gentiles as Adelphoi. Um, curious what your thoughts are. Am, am I making too much of this, or, or is or is there? Would you? Is your thinking and processing what I'm saying? Is there some significant, you know, messianic significance to this designation? So, if so, what? Well, I would say there is a good bit of significance to this designation. This is not the way to, to speak of Gentiles, for a Jew to speak of Gentiles as brothers. That's not the normal way that Jews in Paul's day spoke about Gentiles. There was nothing brotherly or familial about that relationship, um, you know, when it comes to Jewish Gentile dynamics in Paul's day, especially when discussing spiritual things. And keep in mind that everything had spiritual significance in the ancient world. There was no uh, partitioning of religion and civic life and private life and family life and so forth. Uh, it was everything was spiritual. Everything was was religious, if you will, the way we think of it today. So uh, there was nothing brotherly about Jewish Gentile dynamics in Paul's day, but Paul's Judaism that he's propagating is different. According to Paul and the apostles, Gentiles in Christ are ex-pagans, to use a term from Paula Fredrickson. They are eschatological or end times Gentiles. The spirit of God dwelling in the Philippians makes them, to use a term that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians, um, he, they makes them new creations. They have been adopted as sons into Abraham's family. The God of Israel is now the father of the Philippians. Thus, Philippian disciples are brothers, Adelphoi, to Paul. Achim, we would say in Hebrew. Um, they are brothers to Paul and they're brothers to the rest of Israel. So this is a super powerful designation that it's very easy to go past quickly. And I think it's still, I think this is still the greatest demonstration of the kingdom that we can demonstrate today. And I think this gets to the heart of our role our mission and our calling in Messianic Judaism as we demonstrate mutuality 
and respect for each other as Jews and Gentiles united under the kingship of Yeshua and, and serving our king and advancing his kingdom, we are demonstrating the brotherly nature of the kingdom. And so that means we don't just tolerate each other. Rather, we see the indispensability of each other because Hashem is not just the God of the Jews, but he's God, the God of the whole world. The Torah is not just for Jews. The Torah rightly appropriated and applied is for the whole world. And so Paul is saying these prophetic realities are unfolding before us. And just the language he's using in passing brothers is indicative of that. Okay. Let's get back to the text and we'll read uh, verses 17 through 21. So Paul continues, brothers, he uses that term again. Uh, he says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Okay, so there's quite a bit we can discuss about this text. So verse 17 is uh, is pretty straightforward in that Paul is making explicit what has been implicit in this letter. Namely, he's wanting the Philippians to continue to suffer just like he has and just like Yeshua has, and just like the others uh, who he's mentioned already in the letter, Timothy, Epaphroditus, they've suffered, and Paul is wanting them to draw strength from that and to see, look, part of the deal here is suffering, but the payoff and the why is worth it. And then I would say in verse 18, uh, here in chapter 3, he gets uh, he gets rather uh, emotional. Uh, he mentions tears as he warns the Philippians about those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says, I've told you, now tell you, even with tears. But Paul was all in. I mean, he he was uh, he was all in. He was not just, you know, trying to be a heavy-handed, uh, you know, apostle here. He cares about these people. He cares about their, their present. He cares about their future. He cares about their past. And he has tears for them as, as a good shepherd under the ultimate shepherd, Yeshua. So he says he has tears as he warns them about those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Of these enemies, Paul says in verse 19, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So now this is an, imp- is an important verse um, in, in trying to identify Paul's opponents. Um, I, and again, I've mentioned this a number of times. Um, and you may think, well, what's the big deal about knowing who his opponents are now? Because that was 2000 years ago. And, you know, what's what's the big deal? Well, I think it, it is a big deal because to rightly understand uh, who his opponents are really help us helps us understand what and who Paul was countering. And if we understand what he's countering, then we have an understand what he's, you know, what, what, you know, we, we understand the letter better. And so we can we can apply it better. I mean, again, I've mentioned uh, a number of times that the standard prevailing paradigm is that Paul is countering other Jewish groups. And so his negative statements here are seen in relation to Jews and Judaism. And that has been, those ideas have been used to, to, to further advance replacement theology and anti-Semitism, uh, you know, in, in various forms, some more subtle and others more aggressive. 
And what I'm saying here is that, yeah, let's be honest about who, what the text is talking about. And we're not going to let, you know, any kind of agendas drive our, or try not to let any agendas drive our understanding of the text. But we have to understand that, that uh, you know, the way we see these texts do ultimately, you know, they, they play into these narratives. And certainly I see in Galatians, Paul as opposing uh, other Jewish uh, groups, but not here in Philippians. This is not a Jewish group, in my opinion. Uh, and, and I know it's a minority opinion, but the opponents here are not Jewish groups. And I think that uh, we've made a good case uh, for that. But ultimately, you have to decide what you think. Okay, so I think it's fair to link the enemies in verses 18 and 19 with those that Paul speaks of actually back in verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2. Remember back in verse 2, we spent a lot of time on that verse. There, Paul tells the Philippians to look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So let's look at, I want to look at, and if you can in your, your at, at home uh, with whatever device or Bible you're doing, uh, it, it would be important here to look at verse 2 alongside uh, here uh, in verse uh, 19 here in chapter 3. So Paul calls them dogs in 3.2 and he calls them enemies uh, in verse 18, and he elaborates that, you know, and, and essentially he's elaborating on what, you know, these enemies here in verse 19. So, um, you know, uh, my my question I would say for you at this point is, as you look at chapter, these verses here, th- uh, verses 18 and 19 in chapter 3, and then as you're looking in, in verse 2 of chapter 3, would you say that this strengthens or weakens the position that Paul's enemies are local pagans? Or would you say that the prevailing viewpoint is more likely? Uh, keeping in mind that the dominant interpretation, as I said, is that the enemies and the dogs uh, here in you know verse 2 and verses 18 and 19, they represent a Jewish group or groups. Well, personally, I think that the description of Paul's enemies in verse 19 confirm uh, that these are pagan Gentile groups that Paul is opposing. Okay. Uh, it's not something I would you know, stake my life on. But I think that the evidence as we read this letter becomes stronger and stronger who and what Paul is uh, against here. So first he says their end is destruction. Now we know that Paul, we know that Paul can speak roughly regarding his Jewish brothers. We see that in First Thessalonians and in other places. Okay, so that's granted. Paul, like other Jews, you know, like Isaiah, like Yeshua, like, you know, Jews can sometimes when they're having family discussions and are upset with each other can can use some pretty aggressive language. But the language, the terminology by saying their end is destruction, and he used similar language in chapter one, verse 28. This is more, I would say, it's more likely language that Paul would use to speak of pagans and not other Jews. Um, so uh, again, could Paul be referring to a Jewish group here by saying their end is destruction? Sure, he could be. But again, I think that this, it makes sense uh, more that, you know, that's the way Jews speak about pagans, uh, you know, and so I don't think he's talking about another group. But then it only gets stronger, my, my at least why I feel he's talking about <clears throat> pagan groups uh, in, in the rest of verse 19. Then he says, their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. Now, again, this is sounding a lot more like a Jew talking about pagans as opposed to a Jew talking about other Jewish groups. 
Uh, Mark Nanos notes that the phrase, their God is their belly. It parallels language from from uh, sources which speak uh, of, from you know from from that era, uh, which speak of uh, of pagan belly talkers or belly prophets who speak or prophesy from a demon inside of themselves. Nanos also notes that the phrase "they glory in their shame" could refer to local pagan groups who were known for shameless sexual behavior and other shameful activity. We talked about how the dogs, you know, again, that image of a, of a dog acting shamefully in verse two, and uh, especially the group that we referred to there called the cynics who were known for shameful behavior. Again, these are all pagan groups. The feel here, the language, the sources, all this together, again, makes me think that Paul is countering. He's worried about the Philippians turning back to paganism. He's not worried about them um, turning, you know, going through proselyte conversion and becoming Jews, which again is the prevailing way of understanding what's happening. So the point is, the language in verse 19 fits better with the enemies being local pagans. Uh, and if that's the case, I think that brings us closer to the real battle in this letter. I think that the real battle in this letter, it's Judaism versus paganism for these Philippian uh, brothers. Uh, and Paul wants this, them to stay in Judaism with the Jewish Messiah. Well, he goes on to say, but our citizenship is in heaven. So interesting uh, statement there. Why would Paul say this to these people uh, who were citizens of Philippi and thus citizens of Rome? Well, as citizens of Rome, uh, they would have had all of the associated rights and privileges of living in a Roman city there in Philippi. But let's remember, because of their association with the Yeshua and this Judaism subgroup, the rights and privileges that they enjoyed as Roman citizens, as citizens of Philippi, those rights and privileges were likely diminishing. They were being marginalized because Paul said you can't worship the gods. And that, again, that's not, that doesn't mean now, okay, you know, that, that wouldn't just be effective on, you know, Saturday or Sunday or Wednesday or whatever it may be. This was, this was all of life that this has an effect on. So I think Paul is making this statement in verse 20 about citizenship in heaven to focus the Philippians on the surpassing benefits and privileges that they enjoy of being a citizen of heaven with Yeshua. Verse 21, it says, uh, he, you know, he will, speaking of Yeshua, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So again, Paul is grounding the hope of the Philippians and his why in the future resurrection, again, which is one of the fundamental hopes of Judaism. So the promise of resurrection is a fantastic promise. It's provided security and hope for the Jewish people in the face of suffering for thousands of years. And Paul is is, is grounding the he's saying, look, you know, I, I he he's I think assumed in his statement is that they're citizens of Rome, but he's saying, you know, they're citizens of heaven and their hope is in the future of resurrection. So, you know, as we're going through this and really looking at this in context. Uh, my hope is that we won't just be looking at this as history and theology. My hope is that this will not, uh, th but that as a, as a community at Tikvat David, as well as those of you who are listening, um, you know, from other places, that we will reflexively turn our eyes to the hope that we have in the power of Yeshua's resurrection during times of darkness. 
You know, cancer cannot stop the power of the resurrection that Paul speaks of here. The coronavirus cannot stop the power of the resurrection that Paul speaks of here. Racial tensions cannot stop the power of the resurrection that Paul says is the hope for the brothers in Philippi here. So may we do as Paul said here, and may we hold true to what we have attained. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to this audio message from Tikvat David Messianic Synagogue. We would love to get to meet you in person sometime at the synagogue, so come join us for Shabbat or one of the holidays. Also, you can join us in building Messianic Judaism whether you live in the Atlanta area or far away by financially contributing to our synagogue. You can learn about the options for giving under the Donate tab at tikvatdavid.org. At Tikvat David, we would love to have you stand with us as we are building a Yeshua-centered Judaism for Israel and the nations. Shalom.